Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Francisca Shanskovsky sat on a bench in the hallway of the Hanover police station, wringing a handkerchief in her hands. Across the room sat her four siblings, Walter, Gertrude, Marie, and Felix. They were here to testify to the police. Was she or was she not their missing sister? It was July 9th, 1938, 41-year-old Francisca had posed as Anastasia Romanoff for the last 17 years. She'd sacrificed many parts of herself in that time, literally and emotionally. But her life as an imposter was filled with luxury and opulence, and she wasn't ready to let it go yet. Eventually, a policeman with a stern look approached Francisca, she tried to read the faces of her siblings across the room. Was this the end? But instead, the policeman apologized for wasting her time. All of the Shanskovsky siblings had signed statements agreeing that she was not their missing sister. Francisca was free to leave. The denial was bittersweet. Francisca had been away from her family for two decades. Her siblings knew her and loved her in ways that no one else ever could. They loved her enough to deny her, to allow her to keep her new life without them, no matter how painful it was. But as Francisca stood up to go home, her older sister Gertrude snapped she leapt up from the other bench and cried out, She is my sister! She is my sister! The other Shanskovskys immediately yelled denials over her. Gertrude ran to Francisca and grabbed her shoulders, pleading with her, I'm your sister! Francisca's heart ached. She could barely breathe. But she kept her face blank, her voice flat. She shook her head and shrugged. I'm sorry, I don't know you. Then she turned and walked away. Francisca never saw her family again. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. 
Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. Con Artist seeks to explore cons from all angles. The perpetrator, the victim, the world they lived in, and the thing that forced them to fool or be fooled. In our first episode, we'll cover the upbringing and early influences of our fraudster. We'll understand what experiences shaped their mindset and the historical context that allowed them to perpetuate their cons. In part two, we'll watch the wheels come off their scheme as their victims recognize the lie. I'll detail how our subject was eventually caught, the resulting fallout, and where they are today. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. In this episode, we're continuing our exploration of Franziska Shanskowski, who impersonated the Grand Duchess Anastasia Romanoff from 1921 to 1984. Last week, we saw how Francisca was able to assume her new identity and the extreme actions she took to change her appearance and strengthen her claim. This week, we'll track how she was able to maintain her lie for so long, even when judges, lawyers, and former Romanovs all denied her. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. In July of 1925, 28-year-old Franziska Shanskowski was on the brink of death from another serious bout of tuberculosis. She languished in St. Mary's Hospital in Berlin, Germany, still posing as the Grand Duchess Anastasia Romanov. She was delirious with fever and weighed just over 70 pounds. During her illness, Anastasia found a new ardent supporter. 38-year-old Harriet von Ratliff sat by her bedside around the clock, doing whatever she could to nurse the Grand Duchess back to health. Like so many others, Harriet believed Francisca was the future of Russia. But while her previous supporters, the White Russians, were politically motivated, Harriet was spiritually motivated. Harriet was an anthroposophist, part religion, part philosophy. The Anthroposophical Society communicated with the spiritual world through meditation, seances, and trances to gain a better understanding of humanity and reveal man's true purpose on Earth. The founder of Anthroposophy, Dr. Rudolf Steiner, never met Francisca but heard the details of her claim and felt that she was spiritually significant. He believed that if Anastasia was returned to her rightful position in Russia, her karmic clarity would be restored, allowing her to play an important role in the upcoming conflict between light and darkness. 
After Dr. Steiner died in early 1925, Harriet von Ratliff sought out Anastasia as her personal spiritual mission. Her motivation was more powerful than any of Francisca's other supporters. To Harriet, the fate of humanity was on the line. Francisca had no hand in it, but by linking her cause to faith, she incited a completely different sense of dedication. Once Anastasia was connected to the Anthroposophy faith with a cosmic destiny, followers were less likely to question the problematic parts of her claim. Dr. Scott Atron, author of In Gods We Trust, said of this phenomenon, the more you look inward toward your religious group and its claims of virtue, the less you look outward and the more distrustful you are of others. But in July of 1925, Francisca's TB infection was so bad it had spread from her lungs to one of her arm bones. Her entire forearm was swollen by a huge legion of pussy disease. Francisca needed a morphine injection every three hours or else she screamed in agony. Harriet dutifully administered the shots. She cooed encouragement as she attended her patient, calling Francisca Melenkaya, Russian for my little one. Harriet also asked for the truth. She needed to document the story to recruit other supporters. Harriet wrote down all of Francisca's memories of Russia in between morphine shots. As she had done during previous interrogations, Francisca lamented that some things were just too painful to talk about. She also told Harriet that the Bolsheviks' rifle blows in Yekaterinburg had not only knocked out her teeth, but given her permanent memory loss about several things. Francisca was utilizing an important tactic in selling a lie. She told just enough truth to be convincing. She committed only to details she knew to be true and ignored the rest of the question. If her interrogator was persistent on knowing a particular point, she avoided answering. Sometimes she distracted her interrogator by popping out her dentures. Other times she feigned deafness until they gave up on the question entirely. She also pretended not to know the meaning of complicated words, how to read or write, the concept of money, or basic European geography. To Harriet, it further proved her claim. Like previous supporters assumed, only someone who was raised in the hyper-sheltered environment of the royal family could possibly be so naive about the world. Once Harriet heard enough of the truth, she started recruiting her fellow anthroposophists to Anastasia's cause. Like Harriet, they were strongly influenced by Dr. Steiner's approval. And luckily for Francisca, several practitioners were also members of the German nobility. By the end of the summer of 1925, Harriet had recruited Herlev Sale, the Danish ambassador to Germany. Sale, in return, enlisted Prince Frederick of Saxe-Altenburg and Prince Voldemar of Prussia. Voldemar was Princess Irene's eldest son, 
She had named Francisca an imposter three years earlier, but it seemed that Voldemar's anthroposophy beliefs outweighed his mother's opinion. The two nobles quickly pledged their allegiance and financial support. When he heard about her grave condition, Prince Voldemar paid for Francisca's transfer to a different hospital. The doctors there performed surgery on her putrid arm to scrape out the infection. The procedure saved her life, but she was still incredibly weak and unable to walk. With the Grand Duchess on the mend, Harriet and Sale drummed up more support. In October of 1925, Sale convinced Grand Duchess Olga Alexandrovna, Tsar Nicholas II's youngest sister, to come and meet Francisca. Olga and her niece Anastasia were very close before the revolution, and she entered the hospital on October the 27th full of tantalizing hope. She slowly approached Francisca's hospital bed, softly calling her by pet names, trying to coax Anastasia out from under the blanket. But she didn't respond to the terms of endearment. Instead, she was sullen and rude. When Olga asked Francisca questions, she mumbled monosyllabic answers and glared, clearly upset by the interrogation. She only got angrier when Olga tried to repeat a question or press for more detail. This can be a useful tactic for liars. By raising the emotional stakes, a liar can manipulate their interrogator into feeling guilty or uncomfortable for asking any questions at all. But Olga, as royalty, wasn't the type to feel guilty about much of anything. Instead, she felt sad for Francisca. Olga wrote in a letter to Princess Irene, It was pitiful to watch this poor creature trying to prove she was Anastasia. For four years, her head was stuffed with all these stories. She was shown a mass of photos, etc. And I believe this whole story is an attempt at blackmail. But much as Captain Schwaber before him, Hairless Sale simply took Olga's rejection in stride and looked for support elsewhere. Dutiful Harriet started transcribing her notes into a book titled Anastasia, the Survivor of Yekaterinburg. When Olga realized that Harriet, Sale, and the other anthroposophists were still supporting Francisca, she felt it was her responsibility to protect Anastasia's memory. On January 15th, 1926, she released an official denial of Francisca. It unleashed an avalanche of similar rejections. Several other nobles and Romanov relations loudly echoed Olga, publishing their own statements. Captain Schwaber, once Francisca's advocate, went on a public speaking tour in the spring of 1926 to try to dispel her claim. Ernest Louis, the Grand Duke of Hesse, and Tsarina Alexandra's brother hired a private investigator, Detective Knopf, to figure out the imposter's true identity and settle the rumor once and for all. But the anthroposophists didn't care about the objections of royalty. They were fueled by an even higher power, a spiritual mission. 
Once Francisca was well enough to leave the hospital in the spring of 1926, Harriet and Sale arranged a series of hosts for her, affording Anastasia with accommodations suitable to her status. As 1926 stretched on, 29-year-old Francisca recovered more from her brush with death. Her weight rose above 100 pounds and she regained enough strength in her legs to walk. But her improvement changed her relationship with Harriet. Previously, they were nurse and patient, roles with a clearly defined dynamic. The nurse is in service of the patient. Harriet wrote that Francisca had demons inside that manifested in outbursts of rage. Francisca screamed at Harriet at the slightest sign of perceived disrespect. This behavior sent a clear message. We are not equals. After a few months of abuse, Harriet moved back to Berlin in the fall of 1926. She still supported Anastasia, but chose to do so at a distance. Francisca brushed off her departure. Soon after Harriet left, she was rehomed in Castle Sion in Switzerland, owned by the Duke of Luxembourg. Finally, a residence fitting of her station. Francisca settled in nicely. But, unknown to her, the Grand Duke of Hesse, Ernest Louis, had continued funding the investigation into her true identity throughout 1926. And in the spring of 1927, Detective Knopf hit pay dirt. On April 1st, the Berliner Nordauskaba newspaper published an expose with Knopf's findings. The woman rescued from the Landwehr Canal on February 17, 1920, who calls herself Anastasia, is, in reality, Franziska Shanskowski. It was her real name, next to a real photo of her. She was unmasked. Coming up, Anastasia escapes to America. Now back to the story. In April of 1927, 30-year-old Franziska Shanskowski was publicly outed as an imposter through a series of newspaper articles. Detective Knopf, hired by the Grand Duke of Hesse, found proof that she was not Anastasia. The articles quoted Doris Vingenda. Franziska once rented a room in her mother's apartment in Berlin. Doris told Knopf all about their former border and showed him Francisca's official documentation paperwork. She allegedly received 1,500 marks for the scoop, the equivalent of $20,000 today. To further drive home the point, the articles were also accompanied by three photos of Francisca at ages 18, 24, and 28. Even though Francisca had pulled out her teeth and hair to change her appearance, it was clear all three photos were of the same woman. Hell of Sale was so shaken by the revelation, he quietly distanced himself from Francisca. But faithful Harriet von Ratliff hired a lawyer and came to Francisca's defense after the articles. This time, she had more than anthroposophy motivating her. 
Harriet's book, Anastasia, Survivor of Yekaterinburg, was scheduled for release later that year. She scrambled to re-legitimize her protagonist. To debunk the Shanskovsky myth, Harriet and her lawyer arranged for Francisca's younger brother Felix to visit Castle Sion and meet Anastasia. On May 9, 1927, the siblings reunited in a park outside the castle. Harriet, her lawyer, and Felix waited at the entrance of the park, obscured by some large bushes. They watched as Francisca arrived on the other side of the small green space, accompanied by the Duke of Luxembourg and his wife. Felix immediately recognized his sister, though she was certainly older and thinner. He rushed over to say hello. Francisca tried to avoid speaking to Felix, pretending she didn't know him, but the Duke stepped in. He instructed her to take a walk with Felix around the grounds. Francisca reluctantly agreed, and she and Felix went for a stroll, out of earshot of everyone else. By the time they returned to the rest of the group, Felix had changed his mind. This was not his sister after all. The next day, he signed an official denial for Harriet's lawyer. Decades later, Felix's daughter, Valtraud, alleged that Francisca asked her brother to lie for her during their stroll around the park. She didn't want to go back to her old life, working in a field or as a maid. And Felix agreed to help. The Duke of Luxembourg didn't really know what to make of the encounter, but allowed Francisca to stay in Castle Sion for the time being. The Duchess of Luxembourg, on the other hand, after seeing Francisca's face during the confrontation, was certain they were hosting a fraud. She nudged her husband toward finding alternative accommodations for Anastasia. In response, Francisca's demons returned. She hurled abuses and rage at the Duke and Duchess, accusing them of disrespect over the slightest infraction. The Duke described her outbursts as straight from Dante's purgatory. Just when he thought he have to choose between his marriage and his anthroposophy viewpoint, a new supporter entered the picture and provided a solution. 27-year-old Glip Botkin arrived at Castle Sion in August of 1927 to meet Anastasia. His motivations to support her had nothing to do with politics or spirituality. Instead, it was Glip's deep hatred of the extended Romanov family, the same relatives that denied Francisca's claim, that linked him to Anastasia's cause. Glip's father, Dr. Eugene Botkin, was the Romanov court physician. He had accompanied the royal family into exile in Yekaterinburg out of duty. When the Romanovs were executed in July of 1918, so was Dr. Botkin. Nearly a decade later, Glip still carried a grudge against the apathetic Romanovs. He viewed helping Anastasia prove this myth as a chance to stick it to the ones who died. In the fall of 1927, Glip convinced Francisca to travel with him to America, where he lived and worked as a journalist. 
he promised to connect her with Princess Ksenia Georgievna, Tsarina Alexandra's niece and Anastasia's cousin. Ksenia lived in Oyster Bay, New York now, married to the heir of a tin fortune. They would be the two princesses of Long Island. Keenly aware that she'd worn out her welcome at Sion and faced with the growing likelihood that Detective Knopf's investigation could lead to some kind of criminal charges, Francisca agreed. On January 29, 1928, she boarded a ship bound for America. Princess Ksenia paid for her travel, first class, of course. Ten days later, she arrived in New York City. Glip Botkin walked ahead of her on the gangway, announcing her to a sea of reporters. The Imperial Highness, the Grand Duchess Anastasia. It was a fresh start for 31-year-old Francisca. None of the Americans had read any of the articles denouncing her and were excited just to be in proximity of royalty. At Kenwood, Ksenia's 53-acre compound, Francisca had an entire suite of rooms and a handful of servants dedicated only to her needs. Her dear cousin Ksenia recognized her immediately, but the affirmation didn't carry much weight with Francisca's detractors. Ksenia had only visited St. Petersburg a few times as a child. The last time she saw Anastasia, she was only 10. But the two princesses reconnected as fast friends, throwing themed dinner parties and spending languid afternoons on Kenwood's private stretch of beach. Francisca shared some of her most painful memories with Ksenia, whose father was also killed in the revolution. Their shared anguish only strengthened their bond. One afternoon, Ksenia's three-year-old daughter, Nancy, ran around the yard in a white and blue sailor-style dress. When Francisca saw it, she burst into tears and ran to her room. Ksenia chased after her, trying to console her, asking her what was wrong. Francisca explained that the sailor outfit reminded her of poor Alexei, who often wore something similar. Her eyes still spilling tears, Francisca begged Ksenia not to let Nancy wear it again. She quickly complied, changing Nancy's clothes. They may have continued like this for years, were it not for Ksenia's husband, William Leeds Jr. He did not believe Francisca for a moment and called her a Polish swindler peddling a hoax. Francisca was now an expert at manipulating those around her when she felt threatened. She needled the pre-existing cracks in the Leeds marriage to pit Ksenia against her husband. Francisca's rage demons returned, prompted by anything related to William Leeds. Like the Duke of Luxembourg, Ksenia eventually had to choose between her marriage and Francisca. In the end, she chose her husband. The details of Detective Knopf's investigation had finally made their way across the pond and Ksenia's dedication to her cousin wavered. When the sponsorship period dictated by Francisca's visa expired on August 8, 1928, Ksenia instructed the household staff to help the Grand Duchess pack her bags. 
she arranged for a car to drive Francisca to the luxurious Garden City Hotel in Long Island, where another supporter footed the bill for the room. Worried about unwanted press attention, Francisca checked into the hotel under the alias Anna Anderson. She used the name for the rest of her life. The adoption of an alias was curious. It was as if she said, Fine, don't believe that I'm Anastasia if you don't want to, but I'm certainly not the Polish peasant Franciszka Szanskowski. Franciszka had decided long before when she pulled out her teeth and hair that she was never going to be herself again. In December of 1928, Francisca moved in with an American socialite who supported her claim. 53-year-old Annie Burr Jennings was the heiress to an oil fortune who never married. With no one else in her life to dote on, Annie treated Anastasia like an adopted daughter. They went on weekly shopping sprees, spending thousands of dollars on clothes. Within a few months, it was assumed that Annie would leave her entire fortune to Anastasia in her will. She would be set for the rest of her life. Finally, she felt secure. But it was all ripped away from her on October 29, 1929. Black Tuesday. The New York Stock Exchange crashed, plunging the US into the Great Depression. Coming up, Anastasia returns to Europe to escape the Depression. Now the conclusion to the story. On Tuesday, October 29, 1929, the New York Stock Exchange crashed, igniting the Great Depression in the United States. Suddenly, 32-year-old Franziska Shanskowski's pampered life as Anastasia Romanoff was threatened. Annie Burr Jennings, her host, had deep enough pockets that she wasn't destitute after the crash. But no one survived completely untouched. No more were the trips to department stores and Broadway shows. The sudden restrictions and stresses of the Depression brought out Francisca's demons again. Her rages pushed Annie further and further away. By the spring of 1930, six months after the crash, they were on the outs. Annie retreated from her Park Avenue apartment to her estate in Connecticut, unsure of how to remove the raging Anastasia from her life. Francisca retreated in on herself, locking herself in her bedroom and screaming at any staff that tried to enter and clean. She stopped bathing and left dirty plates of half-eaten food stacked up in her room until they drew flies. She wrote vitriolic and threatening letters to Annie Burr Jennings, accusing her of spying for the Bolsheviks and trying to kill her. Then, on July 14, 1930, 33-year-old Francisca had a total mental breakdown. She flung a heavy ottoman through the window of her room, shattering the glass. The shards fell onto the sidewalk, drawing the attention of pedestrians below. When they looked up, Francisca was standing naked in the empty frame. She bellowed at them, commanding them to move out of the way so she could jump. 
Eventually, the police arrived. They were forced to break down the locked apartment door to rescue her. Francisca shrieked and flailed as they dragged her away from the ledge. A few days later, Annie's lawyers filed an order with the courts to have her forcibly committed. On July 24th, a judge determined Anastasia was a danger to herself and others, legally insane, and taken to the Four Winds Sanitarium in upstate New York. A decade after jumping off a bridge into the canal, Francisca was back where she started. After a year in a mental institution in upstate New York, 34-year-old Francisca Shanskowski left the U.S. in August of 1931. She'd driven away all her supporters and was out of options. Annie Burr Jennings, still protective of Anastasia and worried she might follow through on her suicidal threats, paid for Francisca to stay at another hospital in Hanover, Germany. Ilten Hospital was a publicly funded facility and therefore not very nice. It would be accurately described as a loony bin. But Francisca had no other options for the time being. This was what Annie paid for and Francisca didn't have any money of her own to go elsewhere. And she was treated well there. The doctors determined that she was not insane as the New York doctors had described. They also validated her Anastasia claim, noting, It would require a surpassing intelligence, an extraordinary degree of self-control, and an ever-alert discipline to maintain the facade. All qualities Anastasia in no way possesses. Word about the Grand Duchess spread around the hospital and eventually made its way to Hanover at large. When socialites Gertrude and Paul Madsack heard how strongly the doctors were convinced by Anastasia, they decided to come meet the Grand Duchess themselves. The Madsacks quickly became another lifeline, validating Francisca and introducing her to other nobility in Hanover. They weren't nobles themselves, but that may have served to strengthen their attraction to Anastasia. Like the Americans, they were glad to have proximity to royalty. The next few years in Hanover were relatively peaceful ones for Francisca. The Madsacks took care of her and even helped her reunite with the anthroposophists. Germany's economy flourished under the guidance of Adolf Hitler in the early 1930s. War was on its way, but Francisca was unaffected. In fact, Gertrude Madsack tried to recruit the Führer as a supporter. In early 1938, Francisca and Gertrude drove to the Nazi party headquarters to plead her case. The women weren't able to meet with Hitler directly, but explained the situation to a senior Gestapo official. Unfortunately, this call for help had an unintended side effect. The Gestapo revived the details of Detective Knopf's investigation. The name Franziska Shanskowski resurfaced after over a decade. To determine the truth once and for all, the Gestapo summoned Walter, Gertrude, Marie and Felix Shanskowski to Hanover, 
they would meet with Anastasia and testify whether or not she was their missing sister. Predictably, Francisco went into a panic over this directive, but there was no way to avoid the confrontation. After all, she was the one who'd reached out. On July 9th, 1938, 41-year-old Francisca faced her siblings for the first time in 18 years. If they named her, she would lose everything. Whether they made a pact to continue her lie, as Francisca and Felix had done in 1927, or they simply didn't recognize their sister after so many years, all four siblings denied her. Relieved, Francisca turned to leave. But at that moment, Gertrude suddenly exclaimed that she recognized her. She called out, she is my sister. By that point, it didn't matter. The statements were signed. The denials had been made. Francisca walked away from her family for the last time. But this interaction clearly affected Francisca. Soon after, she unleashed her demons on the Madsacks, pushing them away. She once again retreated in on herself, hermiting away in her private apartment at Ilton, refusing to see anyone. She might have been concerned that the Madsacks knew too much now. They met her entire family, saw the resemblance between them, and heard Gertrude's emotional outburst. Francisca may have pushed them away to prevent them from having any kind of hold over her. But given what followed, the reunion with her family likely made Francisca reevaluate whether the lie was ever worth it at all. She was an island in this life, unable to be her true self with anyone. Whenever she felt like someone was getting too close to her, Francisca instinctively pushed them away out of the fear that they could discover the truth. Eventually, the anthroposophist helped Francisca relocate to a secluded cottage deep in the Black Forest. Francisca remained hidden there for the next 20 years, supported by a few anthroposophists. She lived in the small house with a maid who cooked her meals. The cottage eventually devolved into total squalor. She habitually adopted any stray cat or dog who wandered up to her door. Junk and filth covered every flat surface. Today, we would classify Francisca as a hoarder. There are several suggested causes of hoarding, but one of them is a fear of loss. Worried that she could be unmasked as an imposter at any moment, Francisca held on to as much as she possibly could. As Dr. Gregory J. Lance described, the more hoarders accumulate, the more insulated they feel from the world and its dangers. Of course, the more they accumulate, the more isolated they become from the world, including family and friends. Allegedly, when the maid died one morning in the middle of making breakfast, Francisca didn't report it. 
She was only discovered when a neighbor came over to complain about one of Francisca's dogs. The neighbor found Francisca in bed, huddled under a dozen blankets. She seemed completely oblivious to the deceased maid and the smell. After this incident, city officials became involved in Francisca's situation. They threatened to condemn her house if she didn't clean it up, which would effectively render her homeless. By now, in 1968, Anastasia had few supporters. Sure, she still had those who would validate her claim, but few sent money anymore. The cottage was the last thing she had. But around that time, she reconnected with Glip Potkin. It's unclear if Glip was aware how deeply Francisca had fallen into isolation, depression, and squalor when he invited her to join him again in America. But in July of 1968, she landed at Dulles Airport and reunited with her old friend. Glip may have assumed that the Grand Duchess would marry him, but Francisca instead attached herself to a new man of means, Glip's good friend, Jack Manahan. He'd inherited his parents' 650-acre estate and substantial fortune. As someone obsessed with history, Jack saw Anastasia as a link to a world that he knew everything about but had never been able to experience for himself. In December of 1968, Jack and Francisca got married. Francisca was truly secure for the first time. She was safe to stay in America as long as she wanted, and Jack had a huge estate and plenty of money. All of her problems were seemingly solved. But Francisca's original issue, her mental health, was never dealt with. Her demons eventually re-emerged as they always did. Her hoarding took over the farmhouse. Worse, Jack was sucked into her madness. By 1978, the condition of the house and surrounding farmland was so bad, the police got involved. Jack paid huge fines and even spent a night in jail. The next year, Francisca had an accident that left her wheelchair bound. She stopped showering entirely and only spoke to Jack. To everyone else, she merely glared. Eventually, the state stepped in and hospitalized her. Francisca remained in an assisted living facility until she died in 1984 at age 87. She was buried in the cemetery in Castle Sion under the name Anastasia Manahan. There was no funeral. In 1991, a mass grave was uncovered in Siberia and five of the seven Romanovs were discovered. The youngest children, Anastasia and Alexei, were not among the bodies. At first, this validated all of Francisca's supporters. This was proof, finally, that she had not died at Yekaterinburg. The anthroposophists rejoiced. But three years later, in 1994, Francisca's DNA was compared to that of the remains. They were not a match. She was not a Romanov.
To close the book on the Shanskovsky myth definitively, Francisca's DNA was also compared to one of her siblings' grandsons. It was a conclusive match. She was a Polish peasant, after all. The Grand Duchess was finally unmasked, a decade after her death. The life of Franciska Shanskowski was viewed by some as a fairy tale, a story to give hope to the despaired that anyone can make their life into something special if they believe enough. But Francisca never accepted who she was, so she took drastic action to change it. In the meantime, she completely lost any sense of herself. She died without anyone really knowing who she was, including her own husband. She was buried under someone else's name. The lie brought her riches, it brought her specialness, but it also drove her insane, perpetually isolating her from everyone around her. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Franziska Shanskowski, amongst the many sources we used, we found Vera Green and Victoria Hughes' book, Almost Anastasia, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easier for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Con Artists, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Con Artist was written by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs> <laughs>